1: Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Daniel Wurls, who is the author of The Senate, From White Supremacy to Governmental Gridlock. This was published in 2021 by the University of Virginia Press, and it's a really interesting book, particularly prescient at the moment um, with regard to understanding the role of a major component of the United States governmental system and where it has some problems, according to author Daniel Orles. Um, So I will let him explain that. I will start out by asking him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Lily, and thanks for having me on the show. So, um, you know, for most of my career as a political scientist, I've had some interest in uh, Congress, Uh, My other major area is U.S. military policy but I decided uh, early on in my career at Santa Cruz to invest more in understanding Congress and I was particularly interested in bicameralism, the relationship between the two houses. And um, one way of doing that was to, I was lucky enough to get an APSA congressional fellowship and went to Congress and worked for a year in Congress and there I was one of the few Uh, APSA, American Political Science Association, I should say, fellows, uh, who actually did work in both chambers over the year. Many fellows get there, and they just work in the Senate or the House. I actually switched halfway through in order to get that picture of bicameralism. And so my interest came to focus more on the peculiarities of the Senate, both with equal representation, that is, two senators coming from every state, and the so-called filibuster, the fact that the Senate uh, is structured largely, or has been structured largely around um, a rule in the Senate procedure that um, can require a supermajority of senators uh, these days, 60 senators, to shut off debate on something and bring it to a final vote. So this led originally to some articles, but uh, my, my first book on the Senate in 2004 uh, that I wrote with my brother, actually, as a political theorist, and about the invention of the Senate. So it was starting really from the beginning. You know what? What did the founders really intend as far as the Senate? And so that book really does end, basically, you know, in the very, very early eighteen hundreds, with the Senate just getting started, and really emphasize, emphasizes the Constitutional Convention, and then. You know, over the years since then, I've worked on various articles that pertain to Senate history, like the the 17th Amendment that gave, you know, the Senate, made the Senate directly elected, and other things related to Senate, and kept thinking about, you know, a book that would be more about not so much the contemporary Senate as such, but would get more into how the Senate evolved towards its current situation, uh, combining sort of very powerful features of equal representation and the kind of difference that makes with the filibuster and especially in this era of hyper-partisan polarization and often at least the appearance of governmental gridlock and so this book developed out of that and it really did start from basically what i just said this this idea of what how does the Senate fit into our current situation of sort of governmental dysfunction and what role does it play in that? And in particular, uh, what are the problems associated with equal representation and the filibuster?
1: And, and you sort of move a bit beyond though the equal representation and the filibuster in the book um, in part because you get into What I found to be really interesting because I do study narrative and imaginaries um, into sort of the conceptual notion of the Senate in the American sort of imaginary space. And I found this to be really interesting in part because it's also sort of what I discuss with my students when we talk about the Senate itself and the fact that it's always in session. Um, And that's one of the sort of interesting myths that have grown up around it. Um, Can you Can you start us off a little bit by talking about, before we get into sort of each section of the book, I wanted to talk about that notion of the sort of mythological understanding many of us have about the
0: Senate. So the Senate, as I put it in the book, uh, there's this notion that you might call Senate exceptionalism, which I could relate to American, the broader notion of American exceptionalism, American exceptionalism being the idea that America has the special place in the world, a special place in history, the, the kind of civic religion that we're here to, in some ways, save the rest of the world and, and due to our special nature, our special founding. And the Senate in some ways has a similar or has had a similar kind of view of itself, that it is the special creation coming out of the Constitutional Convention, and it has this special purpose or purposes that other institutions don't have. And that has created this kind of mythology or helped create this kind of mythology about the Senate that senators themselves are, are very helpful in trying to perpetuate. Often, though, through... I hate to say it this way, almost a profound ignorance of their own institution, right? They assume this about the Senate, and they'll say things are just dead wrong about the Senate, including, as we'll get to more detail later, that the filibuster was even sort of part of the founding or even what the founders intended for the Senate when that's in no way true. Um, So, you know, this idea that the Senate is the greatest deliberative body in the world, and you know it has this special place in our system in protecting minority rights. You know there are they're always in these elements of some sort of truth or elements that you can see that relate to maybe the founding and so forth. But by and large, they are distortions in many ways of what the the Senate was really intended to be, uh, and certainly the way it was intended to behave. I'll just give you one quick example, and we'll probably come back to this one later. It wasn't that the founders wanted more deliberation in the Senate. They wanted better deliberation or a different kind of deliberation. Um, Whereas, you know, the, the Senate has in its history is kind of, or senators kind of conflate the ability just to talk with this idea of what the founders wanted. And that's not really true.
1: (laughs) And, and I mean, I, I know that, that Madison talks about this in the Federalist Papers that, the, the Senate is supposed to be populated by smarter, wiser, older, um, more experienced, less corrupt individuals than the House. I mean, he says this in a couple of places. Um, and so does that feed into does that, does Madison's early sort of Federalist papers discussion feed into some of this um, mythology around the Senate?
0: Yes, and, and you know it's certainly true, even beyond just Madison and the Federalist Papers, when you look at the debates from the Constitutional Convention, they really were, the, the framers really were searching for this kind of model for a, a second legislative institution that was a little bit more insulated from popular pressure, uh, smaller. That was a big characteristic for them, the idea it would be a smaller body, and therefore The conversations could be more sort of, you know, direct and almost intimate with each other. Um, And all that was true, but that was all structured by things that we might not think of as that important right now. The difference in age, right, the length of term and, and the smaller size, which obviously can still matter to some extent. So those were these real characteristics built into the Constitution that were meant to foster this different kind of deliberation from the House. That didn't mean the House had a, would have a bad form of deliberation or the wrong form of deliberation. They were just meant to be two different forms of talking about the same things.
1: So you, you sort of start out after the discussion of whether or not the Senate is really an exceptional creation, um, which you suggest perhaps it's not, um, that You move into the equal representation argument, which is also part of, you know, our understanding of how how the compromise operated at the time of the Constitutional Convention and the small states wanted their voices equally heard. Um, And, you know, as I point out to my students every time I talk about the Senate, California, how many people live there? Wyoming. How many people live there? Each one has two senators. Hmm.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, and, um, you know, that certainly is an element that was built into the constitution. And as I say in the book, it was called the great compromise for a reason, meaning it, it is indeed the thing that almost brought the convention to a close, unsuccessful, potentially unsuccessful close, because you know the the so-called large states, or certainly some group of states, you know, felt this was fundamentally unfair, and um, you know a group of states, sometimes referred to as the small, the, the you know the smaller states, um, and often not all together, but some southern states felt that you know equal representation. Uh, was totally justified because, of course, that's the way the you know the 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 Confederation Congress had been structured, and they were still thought of themselves as states, still having some sovereignty separate from this newly created nation. So that certainly was built into the Constitution, um, but even from the start, it was contentious, and there's even kind of an irony in it, which is that you know the. The people who in some ways were for the the Senate um, history flipped it on its head because some of the states that thought they were going to be really the large states turned out to be the smaller states and vice versa. So it didn't necessarily help in the end the people who thought narrowly or in a short-sighted way about what they felt would be best for them. But I think, you know, going forward... Um, the, the consequence of equal representation is just as you put it, meaning in this day and age to have uh, California and, uh, you know, in Wyoming, such vastly different states having the same representation. And, you know, and also the fact that, um, you know, we live in a world where really the major principle of democracy worldwide is one person, one vote, right? So to justify some major discrepancy In that principle of one person, one vote, which is enforced by, you know, a Supreme Court ruling, several Supreme Court rulings across the entire country, except for the Senate, because the Senate's in the Constitution. Um, You know, that gets, I think, increasingly hard to justify why uh, someone's vote in one state is worth so much more than someone's vote in another state.
1: And and you sort you trace how this this sort of came to be more important to certain states as time evolved, or as you know we say in sort of American political development that this what became somewhat of a bulwark against. Um, Progressive change around African American rights, and to some degree the end of slavery, but in particular the sort of long stretch of the um, post Civil War period. Can you talk a little bit about how this this particular sort of structure of the Senate came to work in in what you're talking about as white supremacy?
0: Yeah. Well, part of, yeah, that, that gets sort of complicated, but that, you know, the, obviously before the Civil War, um, you know, the the Senate provided the South, the slave-holding South, with a sort of bulwark against even limited reform or limited changes, uh, because the Senate was kept more or less equal between free and so-called slave, you know, slave states, and um, then after the Civil War, it wasn't so much that these the vast population disparities were at work as much as the Senate was became so hegemonically democratic, right the Democratic Party which was the party that was becoming to defend most clearly white supremacy and then you know Jim Crow and segregation, and everything else in the South, it was so hegemonically democratic that the Senate then, combining equal representation and this one-party hegemony in the South became kind of, again, a bulwark for the South to um, be able to essentially uh, veto a lot of civil rights, any sort of even mild mild attempts at civil rights reform, uh, such as it sometimes tried to happen in the late 19th century and then into the 20th century. And of course, this is then Where you combine that with the filibuster, that is the idea that in the Senate, you know, you are allowed to talk basically as long as you wanted to. So if you had the power of all these votes from the Senate against any sort of civil rights combined with your ability to filibuster, uh, that became a very powerful veto against attempts to, as I said, even what we would think of as very... Mild attempts to deal with you know, civil rights issues,
1: and and so in order to sort of move forward, as you know, as we sort of have seen historically, and and in our understanding of what transpired, there were members of Congress who had a, essentially stand athwart the the southern. Um, senators um, in order to move what became the civil rights legislations of the fifties and the sixties. Uh, and so the Senate's structure here by, you know, sort of allocating so many votes to um, smaller states or states that are consistently holding a particular line of policy um, certainly doesn't seem to allow for the protection of anybody's rights, majority or minority can, can can you talk about the issue around the protection of minority or majority rights that the Senate is supposed to operate from?
0: yeah so that's part of part of Senate exceptionalism is that this idea that it was built to be the protector of minority rights in general And the first point is that, The framers clearly saw the system as the whole, as a whole, as the protector of what you might think of as minority rights, or really better put, the protection against what they thought of as majority tyranny. It wasn't so much that they were concerned about minority rights in some sort of modern sense at all. They were worried about majority tyranny, meaning some sort of consistent majority over time that would dominate the system and be able to to shut out any other sort of political forces. But that was to be dealt with by the system as a whole, the House, the Senate, the President, the veto, the court, and so forth, the Constitution itself, the Bill of Rights, things like that, not the Senate as such. So part of Senate mythology is somehow a special role. What I argue in the book is that in many ways, you can see that equal representation, this, this part of the Constitution that did in fact structure the Senate by creating, you know the, the, that, that states with less population would assent to have an equal vote or the same kind of vote in the Senate. That gives rise to kind of the myth that this is about minority rights in general. when really what it was was two different majorities. You have a majority of the population in the House. And a majority of the states in the Senate. That is, that's what you're getting at. But instead, uh, as we go through time, senators have more of a motivation to sort of downplay equal representation as such and transform that into the idea that we are here to protect minority rights in general. Um, especially in the 20th century, that begins to sound better. You know, just saying we're here to protect Hawaii or whatever, Alaska or Wyoming. In some ways, doesn't sound as noble as we are the institution to protect the minority. And after all, for many of these senators, it's not about Wyoming as such. It's about me, the senator from Wyoming, and what I want. Uh, So that just sounds better to put it in terms of minority rights, and and therefore cast the Senate as having that special role when it really doesn't. Again, it's the system as a whole that has that role. The Senate plays a particular part, but just as the House or the President plays a particular part in that.
1: And and one of the points that is not necessarily a, a main component of your analysis, but I'm curious about, um, is is this idea of you know the Senate representing the states as opposed to, you know, the House, which is supposed the direct representation of the people. But now we have the direct election of senators, so they're still representing the states, but they're still representing the people. And, you know, Texas would like to repeal the 17th Amendment, apparently. They've been talking about that for a while because they think it has gone badly askew. Um, so I'm curious about what you sort of just said about these two majorities, in, in the, how the Senate represents the states but not the people, or also the people but through the states, through this federalism?
0: No, that's a great question, and again, there are a lot of ways to answer it. Um, certainly, uh, you made reference you know, to the, the 17th Amendment and the fact that for much of the country's history, the Senate wasn't directly elected, was selected by state legislatures. So therefore, one could make the argument that Senators really were there to represent their states as such, not necessarily the people in whatever way you might want to conceive that. Of course, after that amendment, when the Senate becomes directly elected, uh, things get more complicated. You know, they're, they're, they are there as part of equal representation, and that has that particular nature to it. But they are directly elected. And so they be you know they certainly are behaving much like House members. And remember, in several states, They're just like House members. I mean, they might be elected for a six-year term, but they're elected by exactly the same constituency in South Dakota, North Dakota. Wyoming. Wyoming, (laughs) Wyoming again, that, you know, is electing the House member from that state. But they certainly overall are behaving much like House members in terms of having to run for election and, you know, into the 20th century, obviously, and our century raised lots of money and so on and so forth and campaigned in the same ways. So that that idea of who they represent and in which ways is is sort of complex. And again, I think senators um, sometimes just like represents to some extent, but even more so, can pick and choose depending on what the issue is to say. You know, I'm here to speak for Wyoming, or, you know, I'm I'm here to speak for the people more generally, right? You know, and, and they have a little bit more of that latitude almost.
1: And um, in, in that regard, I, I wanted to sort of move on also to how you weave together the problem of the Senate or the problem of the Senate as it currently exists is a, is also tied to the mythology and the reality of the filibuster. So can you explain to listeners who sort of know the word filibuster, know it means somebody talks for a long time, um, but like how the filibuster actually works, that it wasn't something that was written into the constitution i always talk to my students about that um and that how it's connected to the senate's function
0: mm, okay so the senate as part of the story we've been telling um was instituted in 1917 there was a change in the rule of the senate about debate And the irony, of course, is that the intent when they created that rule was to limit filibusters by having a mechanism to shut off debate. So this was implemented in the face of many, many filibusters at the time, which were just based on the idea that Senate rules allowed someone to talk as long as they want. And there was no way to shut off debate at that time, as long as someone wanted to be recognized and was willing to keep talking. So when this rule was brought about in 1917 it was seen as a reform to limit senate debate not eliminate it but simply allow a way to limit uh filibusters as they were called then and so it it, when it was written in 1917 it took two-thirds of all the senators voting to shut off debate uh then it was changed you know obviously much much later in 1975 to three-fifths hence the 60-vote Senate we, we talk about, that you need 60 votes in the Senate to get things done. So the irony, of course, is it was created to shut off debate or have a way to limit that kind of filibuster. The effect over the long run was to empower filibusters to, by putting the burden on the majority in the senate to muster the supermajority to cut off debate so you go from you know this idea of this is a way now we can limit filibusters we can you know shut shut these down when they're not productive and they're just getting in the way to oh my gosh we've created a rule somehow that effectively empowers people because now we have to get those 60 votes and in most cases those 60 votes are going to be very hard to get and that leads to part of your question, which was the myths and reality of the filibuster. And so in the book, I, you know, there's a lot of things I talk about with regard to the filibuster, but you can say there are sort of three myths or distortions, and you pointed to at least one, which was the myth or distortion that it, it was directly part of the framing or the founder's intent for the Senate to have something like the filibuster rule. When it wasn't at all, the second distortion was that it was a essential part—the filibuster of what made the Senate the, the greatest deliberative body. Um, you know that it was once the bastion of minority voices opposing ill-conceived actions and laws. And then the third is that the filibuster fosters or protects debate and deliberation. That the supermajority super cloture allows. For greater debate than in, for example, the House. Now, what I'm not, what I'm saying is that these are not absolute myths or lies, but they are certainly partial. In some cases, myths about the Founding, but certainly distortions in terms of how the Senate actually behaves. So, for example, um, you know, to take the one about that it um, protects and debates d- protects debate and deliberation, that's a distortion because. In the last 30 years or so, the filibuster really, or the rule that protects you know, the supermajority cloture rule, really has essentially undermined debate. And most senators actually really know that, meaning it's not as though the filibuster then leads to great debates that lead to great solutions. It's instead not about voice that is my ability to say something in the Senate. It's about victory. It's about veto. It's about my side being able to win or at least either veto, stop the other side, the majority, or compromise in some ways. And that's what it's really about. And so in most cases with the filibuster these days, last 30 years or so, but especially in the last couple decades, uh... The filibuster essentially ends debate. As soon as anyone's pretending to filibuster, the Senate moves on to other business. They stop talking about what it is they were going to talk about, voting rights, gun rights, whatever, and they move on to something else and they figure out whether that's dead, that issue is dead, or whether they can come back to it. So in many ways, it's almost the opposite of what everyone claims it is, uh, that it's about debate when it's really about, it's really a decision rule. It's converted the Senate, in many cases, into a supermajority body, and that is nowhere in the Constitution that you should need a supermajority of the Senate to make a final decision.
1: And I just want, because I'm curious about this, how much does Mr. Smith Goes to Washington play into the mythology around sort of the virtue of the filibuster?
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> the, one of the points I make in the book and I begin a chapter with it is that you know, in, in 2011, when the Senate has one of its last sort of debates about the filibuster, uh, where they actually spend some time on the Senate floor talking about the Senate, the filibuster, and whether it's good or bad, uh, several of these senators, you know, and Amy Klobuchar, the other ones who we, we know are still there, evoke and invoke this movie from 1939, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with Jimmy Stewart, as an example of the greatness of the filibuster. And the point I make is no one defends the filibuster with its actual history (laughs) because that would almost require you to mention things like Strom Thurmond. And no one, even Republicans aren't going to mention Strom Thurmond as an example of a great filibuster. So that's why I say they can't even defend the filibuster with with its own history. And that's kind of sad or that kind of reveals the problem with the filibuster. That it really, you know, you you evoke this myth making in Hollywood as a way of justifying it. And as I point out, for some reason, this is brought up over and over again in 2011. And even in much, much longer debates about the filibuster in 1949, 1954, 1975, no one mentions Mr. Smith goes to Washington, which is just kind of curious, right? That the further away we move, the more they needed to kind of <laughs> use that as their exemplar of the filibuster.
1: Yet another <laughs> point to how much popular culture shapes our understanding of <laughs> politics, which is my bread and butter. So
0: <laughs> I'll take Well, it. also, one could say it's kind of funny that, you know, some people make arguments about how the Senate's a little bit out of touch. You know, maybe some people are a little, you know, should have retired a little while ago or something like that. And it is kind of funny to evoke this movie from 1939 that, you know, certainly a good chunk of Americans are not familiar.
1: <laughs> but they've so, heard of it. They've heard of it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> So a, a lot of your book, particularly the second half of the book, is about how the Senate really has played this role of not only protecting white supremacy, both slavery at the time, but then in the post-slavery period, Jim Crow and so forth. But that it has it, it essentially is a kind of white supremacy or body. <laughs> Uh, can you sort of take apart the components that you write about in the book that sort of lead that are the threads that lead us to this understanding of how this particular body within the constitutional system is acutely connected to white supremacy in the United States?
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'd, I wouldn't want to say that, obviously, the other institutions aren't as well. <laughs> you know, it's more it's more what I'm trying to argue is that that the... The role the Senate played in white supremacy is part of what gets pushed aside by the Senate exceptionalism argument, and so by bringing out the white the aspects of of white supremacy that are that are part of the Senate's history, uh, I'm trying to undermine that exceptionalism, and it isn't so much that then that excuses the House or the president <laughs> or the. Or, or especially the Supreme Court, <laughs> right? You know, sure. for, certain, for certain decades, many decades of its history, uh, especially you know late nineteenth, early twentieth centuries. Um, so those certainly those institutions are are quite guilty of of at many periods in their 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 evolution of of maintaining or bolstering white supremacy. It's more that I wanted to show the ways in which the senate's mythology about itself kind of obscures or attempts to obscure its role in white supremacy and you know one of the ways is equal representation especially deep in american history but even today equal representation you might think well that's just about wyoming and california but of course embedded in that deeper down in that difference between new york california well, even Florida, Texas, and Wyoming, North Dakota is, of course, the underrepresentation of minorities, right? So maybe we're not maintaining white supremacy as such. Maybe, maybe some people would argue that's too strong of a word these days or term, but certainly the underrepresentation of 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 urban communities and therefore in for many states predominantly minority communities, and the overrepresentation of largely White rural um, areas in in many states, uh, senates, you know, it's, uh, smaller states with equal representation. That certainly then continues the problems associated with what some people might still call white supremacy, but certainly, you know, the problems associated in and around Black Lives Matter and other things we see today. And that so the Senate, whether or not it's 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 still as actively involved in maintaining a kind of white, you know, sort of white supremacy or white domination in any sense, it still plays a certain role in that simply because of its structure, its representational structure. And that certainly is not um, helped in any way about, of course, by the filibuster. So that, you know, take any, I don't know, take an example, gun control. You know, the Senate is certainly famous, infamous for being the stopping point for many attempts to limit gun control or you know, to institute, institute, excuse me, gun control in recent decades, uh, going back to Sandy Hook and, and other examples. And so you, you know, one can argue that many things that might be in the interest of minority groups in this country, in particular African Americans, um, have certainly less voice, less of an opportunity to get past the Senate than they do the House.
1: And, and, and again, sort of an aside, the, the issue with regard to one person, one vote, as the sort of operating basis for our understanding of democracy in the United States and elsewhere, um, and you have the, the sort of peculiarity of the Senate structure, that also contributes to some of our difficulties with regard to, say, the Electoral College. Well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and that's, you you know, you've mentioned some things you say to your students, you know, one of the basis of my teaching when I teach about American political institutions is trying to separate your politics from your constitutionalism. That is, what do you think is our best form of government? What do you think is the best way to elect the president? What do you think is the, you know, regarding the Supreme Court? Should we pack the Supreme Court or not? The idea being Try to make up your mind about the best form of government or particular aspects of the best form of government separate from being a Democrat or Republican, a liberal or conservative. Can you do that? Can you think what is the best system for all of us versus just for my immediate political interest? So, you know, as many listeners will know, you know, a big issue right now with the Supreme Court is this idea of packing the court, right, making the court larger. You know, okay, that's tempting if you're a liberal, I guess, to go down that direction. But in the long run, is that the kind of way you'd like to see the court structured? Well, maybe yes, but then don't change your mind as soon as the next election happens or something like that. <laughs> Clearly, to get back to where you started, the, the electoral college is a great example of that. That is, I think it's perfectly possible to make up your mind about how we should elect the president, you know, separate from your politics. And once upon a time before we became so polarized around these issues, many issues, all issues, um, when you surveyed Americans about the electoral college, they were for direct election of the president. Solid majorities were for direct. And that was bipartisan. But then in recent years, as it became clear that Republicans are more likely to benefit from the current electoral college system, you can see that show up in polls where there is a more partisan divergent. And that's unfortunate. Because I think people can and should make up their mind about the filibuster, equal presentation, you know, the electoral college, without simply, you know, looking first and foremost to their short term partisan interests. You know?
1: and, and you sort of drop this in this line in the introduction that the Senate is a problem in a system that is largely problematic. Um, and then you don't go on to talk about the other problematic part, you know, it's a very Hamiltonian move. So well done there. <laughs> sort as I, as I talk about, you know, some of, some of Hamilton's sleight of hand with my students in the Federalist Papers, um, can you elaborate a little bit about how the problematic Senate is part of a broader problematic?
0: Yeah. So, um, Certainly, many political scientists have argued uh, that that uh, not to blame it all on Madison, but like Madison overdid it, right? You know, we have we have maybe too many checks and balances in the system, and and you know you add on that top of that federalism, and you know the states having certain. And it's not to say that we should you know just be a pure parliamentary democracy, but there's certainly. You know, certainly, many political scientists have argued that our system can be so fraught and divided by both federalism, the divisions within the national government, that it's very hard for government to now, especially given the multitude of issues it's trying to deal with and solve. You know, Things were simpler back in the 19th century, they might have been awful in certain ways, but government, the national government certainly had fewer problems it was trying to solve now with the multitude of very difficult problems we have you know our government can and often does look you know very ineffective so it's that idea that you know did the founder slightly overdo it and is there are there ways in which we could modify that system to make it uh still safe in terms of governmental power but more effective as well and i think there are some really you know some powerful ideas out there um you know, put across by the political scientists. I happen to be fond of of an idea put forward by um, Howell and Moe, uh, Terry Moe and, and William Howell, that even in the face of presidential power and the dangers of presidential power, that that's the almost the one wrong way of looking at it is to then go, oh, we should give Congress more power, where they, and I happen to agree with them, think that's a dead end because Congress has such collective action problems that it can never really, you know, be the driver of government. Whereas it's more, how do you make the president more effective without still being able to check with and still be able to check the president? And so one of their ideas is to actually give what the the president, what they call universal fast track authority, right? Where the president has the power to submit a piece of legislation to Congress and Congress, let's say, has 45 days to vote up or down on the the bill without amending it, they can still introduce their own bills. They can still pass their own bills. You're not taking anything away from Congress. You're simply giving the president the power to directly submit legislation, and they can say no. But it possibly allows the system to have a slightly more parliamentary aspect where, in fact, you have the prime minister submitting legislation to parliament, in this case, Congress. And then they have to act, and that obviously, by the way, overcomes the filibuster. Right? <laughs> they only have let's say forty-five days or ninety days, whatever you want to say, you know. And at the end of that, they have to vote. So even if Senator Cruz or whomever wants to talk, 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 it comes to an end at some point, right? So I'm, you know, listeners can go, oh, I don't know what I think about that idea. Well, that's the whole point: is is to to wonder whether there could be ways of doing this without totally throwing out the system and, and and you know creating a totally new one but at least dealing with some of the dysfunctions we have and I think a more productive way yeah
1: And so my my next question with regard to that is what's the solution for our pals over in the Senate <laughs> yeah
0: you know I think you know the the, the Senate has, eroded the filibuster quite a bit you know obviously equal representation we could go on a great length and how difficult that is because it's in the constitution it's almost impossible to change but for now um let's concentrate on the filibuster you know the senate has hemmed in the filibuster in two ways one is through laws almost that i just mentioned that create fast-track authority Uh, with regard to certain categories of legislation like trade legislation, budget reconciliation, where indeed they're time limited. They're by law. They have a certain amount of time to consider things and they can't amend it, or in some cases they can maybe, but they have to vote on it. So that overcomes the filibuster. And that both chambers agreed to do that in many cases. So they know, sometimes they know we should do things differently. Secondly, of course, were the two so-called nuclear options that eliminated all presidential appointments, executive appointments, judicial appointments from the effect of the filibuster. So they're all, you can have a simple majority vote on any to close debate on any nomination from the president to the courts or the executive branch. I think those are good things, but what's left, of course, is the ability to filibuster pretty much any other piece of legislation. So my argument is the Senate should realize the benefits of what it's done already and go all the way. But very quickly, what I would do is it's not a zero-sum game. I think the Senate can amend its rules to say anything that comes before the Senate is guaranteed a period of debate. We can lengthen that by unanimous consent, by all green. We can shorten that by unanimous consent. But you start with a guaranteed period of debate. Amendments, whatever, but that just means we know what's going to happen and it will end. But that gives the minority their voice. That gives them an opportunity to maybe raise amendments and and offer amendments and see how everyone votes. But then you get out, you get away from all these games about does this shut things down? Do we move on? Do we do this? No, we have a debate. If you if you have nothing to say. You have nothing to say, you know, (laughs) if you want to try to convince us, try to convince us. So what I'm trying to get is it's not a zero sum game where it's like, oh, you either, you know, have endless debate or you have nothing. And it's just like the House of Representatives. There is an in between. And they could do that. And I I think, you know, I wish they would. And, And if we have a minute, you know, one of the problems, I think, with this whole debate about the filibuster is this anger over the filibuster always comes up in the heat of a moment over a particular issue. The latest one, of course, is abortion. You know, a minute ago, it was <laughs> guns or whatever. Before that, it was voting rights legislation. And you just keep going back. Where people And then appointments. You know, people get angry about the filibuster in the heat of a moment over a particular issue, and then they want to get rid of it. I would like the Senate to take a moment, find a time, and debate about it. And And I would actually like the Democrats, if they lose the elections come this fall, and they lose the Senate, I would like actually this, the Democrats, when they're a minority, some group of them, to offer this reform I'm talking about up and say, we should get rid of the filibuster. You know, yeah, you might benefit for now, but we might win the election later. We'll all be better if we get rid of it now. That's my argument.
1: OK, I'll take it. That's it, it, <laughs> it's, it's it's it's, you know, hopeful.
0: <laughs> Whether it will
1: happen or not is something completely different. But um, so, Dan, what are you working on now?
0: So you know, like all of us, having gone through COVID, teaching, and and being exhausted, I was very lucky to even finish this book because it was a it was a close call in terms of my energy level and time. Right in the middle of when this all got going, I was trying to put the last draft together, uh, so it was very difficult. So I had to recover from that. So I'm trying to get back to you know, a subject we're both familiar with U.S. defense policy, um, but that's sort of right now taking a backseat to, to just a little article-sized project that got longer than I thought it was going to be. And it, it's back to the, the House and the Senate, in particular this time the House, and it's the oddity that we tend to refer to members of the House of Representatives as congressmen or congresswoman, when that's inaccurate, you know congress is both the house and the senate and in day in these days when we're trying to move towards some form of gender neutrality in our language it's bizarre in a way because the word is already there representative just like senator so the point i make is one of one of the points i make is Marsha blackburn the senator from tennessee was in the house and she was one of the people when she was in the house who liked to be called congressman right yeah and now she's a senator. She has no choice, right? <laughs> and that's the way it should be. It should be representative and senator. So the the, contrib- the scholarly contribution I'm trying to make is no one had ever looked at how did that evolve? How did congressmen and then congresswomen evolve and become attached pretty much to members of the House? So I show how that happens by looking at uh, its earliest uses before the Constitution was even written. And then How, when the Constitution is implemented, it becomes more used, especially in and around elections, because it was fairly accurate to say, oh, here's who was elected to Congress. They are members of Congress because the Senate wasn't elected. So do you see what I mean? It was perfectly accurate for newspapers to say, these are our congressmen because they were elected in this election. The Senate... That's this other thing that happens elsewhere. Does that make sense? Right. In fact, in the newspapers, they would list the results of elections and they'd say senators. They, of course, meant the state senators, not the U.S. senators. Right. So I show the evolution of how that gets going. And then in some ways, even how it's reinforced by the use of the word congresswoman, because then it becomes once Jeanette Rankin and other people are in the House, then it's even more the idea that you're in the House, you're a congresswoman. If you're in the Senate and a woman, you're a senator. Right. So, you know, it's it's a fun little thing, a little project. I've had a lot of fun doing it. We'll see if I can find anyone who's interested in it. <laughs> so we'll see.
1: Um, I'd like to read it because I'm curious to know sort of when it switched over, because, you know, obviously the New York Times and the AP style guides are pretty You know, this is what you, this is how you reference them when you write about them. And that's not just for, for, uh, newspapers, obviously, but it's also you and I, when we write, you know, scholarly work, this is how we talk about them. And, and it's a, it's a mouthful to say congressman somebody or congresswoman somebody I'd like representative better. Right. (laughs) Well, if it turns out to a book, come back and talk to me about it.
0: (laughs) This one's going to be an article at best, yeah. Okay, all
1: right. Um, well, the next book, I'd love to talk to you about whatever the next book is. Defense policy, representatives and the House members and senators, whatever. Um, I want to thank Daniel Worlds for joining me today to talk about the Senate, From White Supremacy to Governmental Gridlock, published by the University of Virginia Press. I believe the University of Virginia Press has a special discount code um that we will have in the uh blurb so that if you go to their website you can purchase it for i think 30% off the cover price um and i appreciate you spending some time with me today
0: All right. well thank you so much it was great to talk to you it's yeah. my pleasure